Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's The Wonky Show. This week we held the secret life of students in London and there's a grab bag of highlights from the event. It's all coming up. Look, you put the case brilliantly and that's exactly the debate that's going to have to take place. Um, How do you balance free speech against right of people who, for whatever reason, feel that they can't exercise um, their rights to free speech because of their identities or their minority status, whatever it is. And that is going to be the the challenge that... um, If it is the IFS that has these responsibilities that um, the organisation is going to have to grapple with. Welcome to The Wonky Show, your weekly way into this week's higher education news, policy and analysis. I'm your host Jim Dickinson and this week in a special show we've got highlights from our Secret Life of Students event that we held in London on Tuesday. Almost 600 delegates from universities, student unions, charities and other sector organisations came together in person at the Business Design Centre in London to focus on the student experience and discuss doing diversity differently, an agenda I set out in the first session. We've all heard over the past few months that the pandemic has changed things forever. And I don't just mean how socially unacceptable it has now become to turn up to work or a lecture theatre, box of Kleenex in hand with nuclear green snot infecting other people. Uh, That, hopefully, is now a practice and behaviour that has been banished and is slightly less heroic than it was in the past. What I mean is that higher education is now much more flexible than it was in the past. And that's true, that those crying out for decades for lectures to be captured are now pleased that both the technology and the adoption of that technology has moved lecture capture into a new normal. It's true that students who previously struggled to access a physically inaccessible campus now breathe a sigh of relief when at least some of their hours of teaching are accessible from home. And it's also true that those who struggled to juggle part-time work and caring commitments are now able to access that learning at a time and in a way that works for them. But just before Christmas, I was lucky enough to be invited to watch a focus group on blended learning being run by one of our subscriber student unions. And there are two comments that I wrote down. One was, the last thing I need is flexibility. University isn't really my priority when I'm at home. Having scheduled classes gets me out of here and allows me to focus. And the other one was, Well, it affects me in different ways. On some modules, I now spend too much time going over all the material. On others, it just means I avoid it. And in both cases, I thought, well, isn't that interesting? There was me assuming that flexibility is the way forward. And I'm sure it is for some students. But for others, in some circumstances, it's the very inflexibility of a timetabled week that provides the experience and structure they need. It's the fact that teaching is in person that causes the campus to be adapted, to be accessible. 
And it's the reality that when we ask students about their diverse motivations, their diverse circumstances and their diverse lives, we end up making better decisions. Doing diversity differently is partly about starting with the assumption that a seminar room, a year group, a halls block or a whole student body is going to be spectacularly diverse. And the goal ought not to be to just do what we did before with a couple of sticking plasters for dominant diversity strands, but to identify the way in which the teaching or the support or the services might be designed to deliver for difference. But reconciling all those things is difficult when the object of the focus is the thing that we run rather than the lives that students lead. And even then, knowing how to do design that caters for so many needs can be overwhelming. For us, it's students that can help us solve many of those problems. Because when we give them genuine power and influence, they can problem solve in ways that are careful, rapid and impactful. Now, in the first big session of the event, Mary Kernock-Cook, the chair of the UPP Foundation Student Futures Commission, discussed the creation of Student Futures Manifestos as a tool for focusing on building students back post-pandemic. Of course, you know, belonging is quite an intangible feeling of, uh, of, of self-worth that develops as part of a peer group community. Um, and I think it'll require attention from colleagues and students alike on, on quite a wide range of fronts. Um, and, and actually, that's where our Student Futures report key recommendation to develop what we've called a Student Futures Manifesto comes in. Um, every, every university community will approach uh, a Student Futures Manifesto in a slightly different way. But for me, the that the fundamental value in the manifesto will come from its co-creation and co-production with students. And, you know, during the, the Commission's work over the last um, 10 months or so, we heard it over and over again, both from student representatives and from university leaders, about the really deep value that both groups got from working together so productively in the eye of the pandemic storm. You know, student leaders felt really empowered and valued and had a strong sense of agency in solving problems with their university, sometimes on a daily basis when it all first kicked off. Um, but also university teams really appreciated the value added by students who were included in the kind of solutioning for problems rather than just uh, consulted afterwards. Um, so that is the core characteristic of a Student Futures Manifesto that it's co-created and co-produced by students and university colleagues. And I, and I really hope it means that Student Futures manifestos will be a little bit less corporate, a little bit less glossy than some of the core sort of uh, strategic documents that universities uh, produce. Um, I hope that they'll be uh, a bit more authentic as a voice for and about successful student futures. We also heard from Gail Kappa, the Outcomes and Insight Manager at Pearson, who we've been working with over the past few months to research the factors that help and hinder students' sense of belonging. So, of course, we don't know what came first. We, in, this, in this cycle that we talk about, we don't know whether students arrive with low levels of mental health or whether they arrive and then their mental health is declining. And actually, it, it doesn't really matter. Once your students are there, once they're reporting below average levels of mental health, we know that most of them are going to say that they don't feel that they belong. So there's lots, of, there's lots of numbers I could have put up here. And I just want to pick out this 80% and this 52% here, because 
Of the students who reported below average mental health, it's 52% feel they don't belong, feeling they belong, sorry, and 80% feeling they belong for those who report above average mental health. So if you've got a queue of 10 people in that coffee queue, just to go back to that, you've got half of those 10 people, if that's a queue of people who report below average mental health who don't feel they belong. If you've got a queue of people who are saying, you know, I'm average and above mental health, eight out of those 10 people are saying, I feel okay here, I feel, feel like I belong here. Actually, the most shocking was if you look at students who say their mental health has declined and it's ab below average mental health, six or seven people out of that 10 are going to feel like they don't belong at that university. And this is shocking to us. And in fact, the queue is far more likely to be for mental health support because that came out third across everyone's priorities. It came above socialising, which okay, might not be too much of a surprise over the last two years. It came above looking for employment. It came above joining clubs and society. Students were asking for mental health support. I think Mary actually has talked about a lot of these feelings as well. Imposter syndrome. I sometimes feel I don't deserve to be at university. Belonging is associated with feeling confident about your abilities. And these are the kinds of headlines that we see at the moment. I mean, you will all have seen them. The students are being handed higher grades than they would otherwise have got at the moment. And how can you not hear that and that slowly seep into the way that you feel about your grades in the last two years? So we asked students about imposter syndrome directly. We asked whether they felt they deserved to be at university and whether they doubted their abilities. Over a third of students don't think they deserve to be at university. If you put a lens of belonging over it, two-thirds of people didn't feel they deserved to be at university. And I think perhaps even more surprising for us, you can feel you belong at university, but that you don't deserve to be there. That was a third. Again, a third of those people didn't, didn't think that they deserved to be there and doubted their abilities, even though they felt they belonged at university. Um, to pull out some demographics, because it is useful, with students with disabilities and trans identity students scored particularly low on this. So the other connection to make is that academic confidence is definitely connected with feelings of belonging. You're twice as likely to say that you belong if you feel confident in your abilities. And Hilary Gebiababeo, the Vice President for Higher Education at the National Union of Students and one of the Student Futures Commissioners, also had reflections on student belonging and confidence. I think there's something really interesting about transitions that I don't think we speak explicitly enough about. I think it was really interesting when we were in the roundtables in the commission that, you know, pulling out transitions as a big piece of work and a key theme in this work is really important for us as a sector. Um, I think often when we think of transitions, we think about how do we get students into university? How do we get them settled into university? And then how do we like sort of leave them to thrive and, and be butterflies and, and do their best? But actually, um, Education is a life cycle, you know, we're talking about lifelong education these days now, we're talking about the possibilities of doing education differently, um, and you can't do any of those if you don't pay attention to what transitions look like, and how intentional we are about transitions, and, you know, this goes to speaking about, you know, students that are not yet in higher education, and how we transition them to a space where they are um, thought much more as independent thinkers, and, and people that can be confident in sort of their thoughts, opinions, ideas, ideas, um, dreams even. Um, I also think about students, and this was a key thing that came up, Mary, in the, in the commission, that students that had already been in higher education sort of been shook by, by the pandemic and then were expected to go into sort of final years or subsequent years um, and sort of just pick up 
where they left off. And it's a, it's a whole different landscape. Students that are transitioning from second year to third year or first year to second year are entering university campuses in person, entering online and virtual spaces. Um, really just like, this is, this wasn't on the prospectus. I didn't see a Zoom logo in, in the prospectus. Um, how am I supposed to now come on campus and find my way and sort of get into the flow? If I just don't know anyone, I don't know where I am. I don't know how to navigate this space. I don't know if there's going to be another lockdown around the corner and what that means for my educational experience. Um, and I thought that transitioned really well into thinking about then, you know, when we are intentional about transitions, what does that mean for belonging? What does it mean to actually integrate belonging, not just as a piece of work you do to sort of be like, we're, we're going to get the task and finish group for belonging and it's going to be finished and we're going to do it finished. Um, but instead, how is belonging a golden thread in all of our work? How do we think about belonging as a standard rather than an add-on or something that we need to do because it's a good thing to do? Um, and I thought this was particularly important because I think there's many lessons to be learned actually from international students, from mature students, from part-time students and, and care leavers and estranged students. Because if, if there was anything that we, we sort of learned from this time, even disabled students even, is that the students that didn't necessarily be like the students that weren't necessarily catered for in what we regard as the past now um, were exactly the students that were giving us the keys to unlock what the future should look like, you know, for digital teaching and learning, which, I mean, we, we, we jumped onto emergency online remote learning and then we sort of um, zoomed into what that looks like as normal. You know, disabled students have been talking about this for years and, and, and years and years have we seen mature students talking about flexibility in their studies to be able to, to really manage continuing to pursue education as something that they want to do and that is good for them and that they enjoy doing um, but doing that in a way that actually fits in with their lives. In our second main session we heard from Bobby Duffy Professor of Public Policy and Director of the Policy Institute at King's College London who had much to say on understanding differences in generational values. One of the key divides that you see is about optimism. You're thinking about uh, future students work and uh, actually, what's going to happen in the future? Can we have that, that sense of optimism? There's this massive, massive divide, obviously, between less developed countries who think that the future for young people in there is going to be much better than their parents. And they've got that kind of uh, real sense of that. Um, and then at the utter end, other end of the spectrum, you've got people in France who only 13% of the public in France think that the future is going to be better for young people in France compared to uh, their parents' generation. And, then, and we're only like at a quarter of um, uh, us thinking it's going to be better, but kids are going to have a better life than their parents um, today. And, it, and that's a, that is a reversal from even the two, around 2000, that sort of time, where it was half of people thought the future was going to be better for our kids uh, than it was uh, for their parents. And we've seen a shift. So it's a similar, similar sort of pattern in the US. The Scandinavian countries are more optimistic. So they're kind of, they're not up at the level of uh, India and China, but they are way above us in terms of that. So, we, so there is there is definitely a variety about the sense of should we be optimistic? Should we think of a bright future for our kids? And um, we are not great in the UK. So I, I kind of I, I do recognise that the the look in people's eyes there would be actually yeah we haven't we haven't got that quite right. We haven't got that sense of vision for the future for our kids. And, and uh, I won't go on about this because there's other questions, but. The crucial thing to recognise about that is that's not just a problem for uh, uh, the kids themselves. This is a problem for all of our faith in the system. Is it working? So I really want my kids to do as well or better than me. And if I lose that sense that they're going to do as well or better than me, what's the point? 
why, why are we bothering with things? So that's where faith in the economic system, political systems come under pressure is when you lose that sense that the future is going to be better for our kids because you're so connected to that. Interesting. And, and I mean, it's funny you say that. I mean, I was, what, there's this debate, isn't there, at the moment about the graduate repayment threshold. We, we, I think, forget that when Theresa May raised the graduate repayment threshold, it was in a speech about the British dream, recreating that idea that generations will do, uh, future generations will do better than us. The other question I was going to ask you was, if I read the average Telegraph op-ed, and I probably should stop doing that for my own, you know, um, I get a sense that people are terrified that the education system isn't transmitting the values that they would like it to transmit. But there's an intersection there, isn't there, with the sheer number of people going to university now. And that we can't just ignore that. There's, there's, a, real, there's a real worry that these, I don't know, I think they were once called, you know, kind of factories of woke are, being <laughs> are, are not transmitting values. Yeah, no, there is a tension there. And there is, but that is played out in the media more strongly than it is played out among the public, clearly, on on certain sections of the public. I mean, one of the trends that I look at in the book is people's aspirations for their kids to go to university. And um, it's, it's, the question is uh, whether it should be expanded, whether higher education should be expanded, stayed the same, or uh, reduced. And only about 15% of even the oldest generation say it should be reduced access to um, higher education. Uh, what has happened, and then the majority of younger people say it should be expanded when you track the generations over time. The, only, the pattern that has changed slightly is, that is worth reflecting on is that uh, baby boomers used to be just as supportive as everyone else, 40 to 50% of them saying higher education should be expanded. But in the last 10 years or so, that has drifted down. So they, they have pulled down that sense. Give us a wave again, boomers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they definitely owe us all a drink. A particular highlight of the event was an interview with Nicola Dandridge, the outgoing chief exec at the Office for Students. Wonky's editor-in-chief, Mark Leach, was keen to get Nicola's reflections on how OFS sets its priorities. I, I, th- I think this... I, I think sometimes the arguments misunderstand the nature of our independence because, for example, in relation to the funding we get... I think personally, and, and indeed as a, as a matter of governance and statute, it is entirely appropriate for the government to attach conditions to funding. So, um, and they do. Um, and they, as the democratically elected government, I think have a legitimate role in saying, this is how we want you to allocate funding. And then they leave it up to us, obviously, to distribute. And I don't personally think that's a problem. Um, Where I think it's different is in relation to regulatory decisions, where we are very um, mindful of the need to make independent decisions as to how we regulate universities and colleges, and we do. And some of the stuff you read in the press is is wider the mark, actually. We we would always make independent decisions. Um, Now, clearly, we get a strategic guidance letter. We've had absolutely loads of them recently. um, And we will um, take them into account, and we have to. But ultimately, it's our decision. And I think, I mean, I can't read the headlines because I haven't got my glasses on, but I I don't know whether they relate to funding, where I think it is... We've got, you know, action on free speech. There was the whole spelling thing. Oh, well, that was our decision. That was your decision. But yes. it, started, it started with an article in the Telegraph. Um, well, it, it, it wasn't... 
I don't think it did start with an article of the Telegraph. It's something we've been talking about for some time. And these things often reflect a wider concern in the sector that we're picking up on or, you know, in the public and um, in the public domain. And then we pick up on it and we discuss it. And it so happens that there's an article in the, in the Telegraph. I mean, no, we wouldn't do something because the Telegraph's t- well, con- concern of ministers that, that it gets expressed in the, in the, in the Telegraph. That's what it does. The, the way the process works is yes. that we will make an independent judgment. We discuss it with the board. We take into account all manner of views and that hasn't changed no I, I, I don't accept that actually we do make independent views but I think it is obviously we will be taking account of external views we will take into account our guidance letters and we'll take into account you know the things that are being discussed out externally we'll take into account student views I mean you know all of that is in the mix as you'd expect the decision to push ahead um, on regulating on, on the basis of um, absolute student outcomes so when, when I asked people what they what they wanted to ask you about they said this question in your, cons- in your own consultation, enormous amount of evidence showed why that might limit opportunities for students and all sorts of other unintended consequences. So can you explain the thinking? So firstly, um, regulating on absolute student outcomes, that's part of a consultation. Um, the consultation is ongoing. Nothing is set in stone. Important to say that at the first point. Secondly, we are not regulating directly on student outcomes. There's this sort of narrative that we're going to apply an algorithm um, related to people's outcomes and we just turn the wheel and then it produces a result. That could not be further than the truth. In the consultation, we're saying we're using a baseline of data and then on top of that we will make judgment and we will take context into account which obviously will include um, the demographic of of the student intake so it's not simply a question of regulating on the basis of of of, you know a student's outcome Um, and that's not in the consultation and it's not going to emerge from the consultation either but what's underpinning that and I think this is the point of your question Mark is is it legitimate to take account of student outcomes at all and um, what we're proposing is um, a, 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 an answer to that, which is absolutely yes, for a number of reasons. Um, we think that student outcomes should form part of a regulatory decision. Um, not least because when we speak to many students and the feedback we've got from students and their representatives, outcomes do matter. So they do care about, uh, students do care about whether they're going to get a job. So take, for example, a course a business and management course, it is likely that students will go and undertake that course because they want a job. So if you end up either dropping out or not getting a job, surely we, the regulator, have to take that into account. And that's all we're doing. So would it mitigate against access and participation? Well, this goes to the question about... Um, the fact that you can't see our regulation of student outcomes without also seeing what we're doing on access and participation. So we're expecting um, the universities and colleges that we we register to do both to take into account access and participation. And if uh, there was a particular university that was driving the student outcomes and neglecting um, their responsibilities for access and participation, then we would say, hey, don't do that. Um, But likewise, um, I think if you've got a situation where a university is recruiting loads of students from disadvantaged backgrounds and then letting them drop out and not letting them have a career. That, that, that is not uh, serving the purpose of those uh, and the, the aspirations of those disadvantaged students. I mean, Mark, I could carry on for a very long time on this, actually, because well, I, I think it's a really fundamental let's, point. Let's pick up that point, because I, I, think, I think you're right. Um, and I think there are also a lot of people in this room, though, that would, that would say even that the, the, um, the baseline thresholds are too soft. Um, and you could even go further than say 60% on graduate employability. Is that, is that high enough as a kind of criticism from 
the other side. Yes, there is a criticism. I mean, look, this is, as I said, it's a consultation. And where we set those thresholds is, uh, you know, up for, up for uh, discussion. Um, but I, I, it felt to us like a sort of sensible place so that you're not knocking out um, many universities and colleges that are doing fantastic things with students from disadvantaged backgrounds where we know there's going to be a, a higher proportion who do drop out or don't proceed on to professional outcomes. So, so we know that we, that, that we need to acknowledge that. And, and the 60% feels like a fairly sensible place to at least start the discussion. I'm wondering if you've got any advice for your success. Is, is it April that you... Uh, end of April. End of April you finish. Um, what, what advice you'll give to your successor in the letter on the desk? Um, well, my um, immediate successor is going to be my very good colleague, Susan Latworth, who's taking over as interim chief executive, and she needs absolutely no advice from me. Um, longer term, um, um, uh, this is going to sound a bit naff, I think, in the context of this audience, but I would really encourage um, them to uh, get out and speak and talk with students. And in fact, it's, it's something I did quite a lot when I started in this role. And I mean, apart from the fact it was completely fascinating, and because I came from the UK, so I had all the employer side of things, um, the university side of things, and then going out and meeting students and student unions when I start, first started at OFS um, was an absolute revelation. And it really did change my thinking about things. So uh, and indeed, one of the you know many frustrations um, of, of not being able to go out um, over the last two years has been not an inability to speak to students, and I think you know I, th- I felt a bit impoverished by that. So I would definitely encourage them to um, spend as much time as they can speaking to student unions and individual students as well, um, not just because it has to um, an important part of their thinking in terms of how they regulate but um it's just uh, it's, it's the bit of the job that i've always enjoyed most i have to say um that's that sounds both obsequious and mawkish and sentimental but it's true and and, and what are you what are you most proud of i mean it can't have been easy it doesn't look easy i'm sure it hasn't no. been an easy uh easy part of your career when you look back on it um, but what are you most pr- what are you most proud of uh doing in your time at OFS? oh i think just setting up a new regulator mm. <laughs> it's just that, it, it was a huge task i mean remember we started back in 2017 when there was no staff and we had to bring the whole operation together which was a challenge in itself and then it's a sector that's never been regulated before and i was just chatting to amanda a colleague about the fact that that, that creating um Creating a new regulator that just by, almost by definition is not going to be liked and establishing a degree of autonomy and independence and getting the regulatory framework up and running in the circumstances where you haven't got the staff to do it or they're coming in from different organisations. I mean, the, the whole setup was incredibly challenging. And I think the fact that, you know, finally um, we are, you know, w- well established now. We've got proposals for a very robust set of quality proposals. We've got TEF proposals. It feels like a pretty solid platform now for going forward as a regulator and I I am immensely proud of that actually. We were also thrilled at the event to hear from three groundbreaking student-led projects, all of which show what happens when we let students and their unions ask the questions and do the leading. Let's have a listen. The Big Change Project is a select committee style interview in which student ambassadors ask a series of questions to members of staff within a department using a coaching and collaborative approach. The Big Change Project was created as a way of breaking a negative cycle. Robin D'Angelo introduced the concept of white fragility in her book. This argues that white people find it extremely difficult to talk about race to BAME people, and especially difficult to do it in public. This then causes restrictions on positive conversations and misaligns the role of people of colour in these conversations and structural racism. 
the majority of organizational leaders, including those in higher education, tend to be white. Therefore, it is difficult to see how we can make things better without feeling comfortable talking about them publicly. The first module is an in-person interactive session where the student ambassadors and staff come together. Whilst the university staff cohorts are primarily trained in race equity, we obviously don't want, want to do that with the ambassadors. They know about racism. They kind of deal with that on a daily basis. So we, try, we train them in coaching and mentoring. The self-assessment. Following the training, the representatives from each university team complete a short self-assessment document. This is designed to brief the ambassadors on the department, its function, previous efforts to address race inequality within the department, and what future plans are in place. Using the self-assessment, the ambassadors then create a, a set of questions for the department representatives in advance of the interview. We really prepare our ambassadors. So not only do they prepare questions, but they also prepare follow-up questions. The participating teams are then invited to a filmed interview using Microsoft Teams or Zoom. Issues like this usually occur where videos don't work and stuff, but we deal with it. But hopefully this year, for the first time, we're going to be having an in-person studio space. The questions provided by the ambassadors are explored, and follow-up questions are also available. The university staff must offer smart commitments at the end of the interview. The films are then edited and published and put onto the student union website Revis and, and then revisited after an agreed period of time, which is usually a year. In a word, transparency. I thought I'd start by kind of introducing what are crits, really, because understandably not everyone here is going to be from an art school background. Um, so crits or critiques are essentially kind of a teaching method um, that are just a form of group feedback at art universities. And kind of typically there's very little teaching um, or preparation around crits, um, which can kind of cause a problem for students because you're kind of in at the deep end and sort of left in the dark a little bit when it comes to how to navigate them. And we also gathered um, testimonies and a kind of call for evidence online um, where students submitted the kind of testimonials that Georgia just described as well. So through this process, we found kind of three main themes that are emerging. So the first one is this idea of a firing squad. Um, lots of um, students, as Georgia described, find this a, an emotional process through which they have to go through, which is built into the way that their curriculum is delivered. And Brown in 2004, uh, sorry, Day in 2013 described this as a firing squad experience. And it's actually unhelpful to the creative process and the way that most art students like to learn. And um, in developing this idea of a community of creativity that most of our students fully believe in. And I think this has wider ramifications for the HE sector as well, because it's a very key example of if you are aware as an institution that a certain method of learning and teaching is disproportionately impacting on your most marginalized students, why are we doing it and why does it persist? Brown talks about the crits as a rite of passage that we've kind of inherited in art schools from the 1960s. It's just always been done. And I think there's a lot of methods across the HE sector that we would, that would chime with, not just within art schools. So it's about reformulating this and thinking if crits were invented right now in 2022, would we invent them in the same way? And the answer is probably no. Um, so a little bit of background about the, uh, about the report is that we have a very diverse group of students at University of Hertfordshire, which we're really, really proud of. Um, but, you know, through a lot of different surveys and experiences that I've personally heard as well, um, you know, we realized that there are certain services or cer certain experiences that are just different for these students. Um, so we did this um, research not only to be able to understand the experience a little bit better, but also um, understand what support we can uh, provide these students and what support would benefit them. 
Another reason that we think that that 18% that we found in our survey is probably much lower than the actual lived experiences of our ethnic minority students were some questions we asked on um, sexual violence. So the survey was split into one section where we asked students to self-identify if they'd experienced harassment or sexual violence, and another where we listed a number of scenarios that fall under the legal definition of sexual harassment or sexual violence and whether they'd experienced these. So that's the scenario-based, um, the kind of greeny line, um, and the the... The blue is the self-reported students who said, yes, I had experienced it. So you can see there's large differences there. For example, for black students, when they were asked to self-identify, only 7% said, yes, I'd experienced um, harassment, including sexual harassment or sexual violence. Whereas when they were pre presented with a list of scenarios, it rose to 16%. For Asian students, it rose from 6 to 23%. And on average, 16% um, of students had experienced some form of sexual violence and didn't know that they had experienced that. Another reason um, that I just wanted to touch on quickly um, was about how this idea of um, students not recognizing harassment or racism or racial harassment when they experience it. And something that came through really strongly in the focus groups was students um, unwilling or, or feeling uncomfortable to label their experiences that they'd had as racist or as harassment. Um, students would very quickly anxiously belittle their own experience. Um, it was also quite common for students to come into the focus group and say, no, I'd had none of these experiences and halfway through recount an extremely traumatic experience that they'd had. Um, but they didn't kind of put those things together and label it as racism or label it as racist harassment. So you have an example here from a student who you can see um, describes uh, an incident they had with, with someone they described as their friend. Um, and they describe it as a bit iffy, but it's not supposed to be ill intent. Of course, racism or racial harassment um, under university rules and under the Equality Act doesn't have to be with intent to be racist in itself. So I guess what I want or what we want people to take from this is that universities really need to work on empowering students to not only know what's acceptable behavior and what's not, but to name their own experiences. Uh, if students don't know that, uh, that what they've experienced is wrong, they are very unlikely to be seeking support for it, even if they know where that support lives. Um, and that universities need to be working really hard to build trust with their students that these cases will be handled appropriately and, and with the seriousness that they deserve. And following breakouts on everything from student preparedness to learning analytics, we rounded the day off with reflections from Mary Kernock-Cook, Richard Brabner, the director of the UPP Foundation, and Omar Khan, the director at the Centre for Transforming Access and Student Outcomes in Higher Education, for their reflections on student futures. Um, we know that universities, students' unions, and their partners have worked tirelessly hard uh, this year in extraordinary circumstances. Now, of course, we all know that is true. The second statement, though, that follows is also true. We know that COVID has been disruptive uh, for students in terms of their learning, their living, their social experience, their well-being and their graduate opportunities. And we were fortunate enough with our partnership with uh, uh, Group GCI to run two surveys, uh, student-focused student surveys over the course of the commission. And the polling for our second survey ran just before Christmas shows just how challenging this continues to be. It found that 73% of students reported the pandemic had a, a very or somewhat uh, negative impact on their mental health. 57% said that the pandemic had a negative impact on the knowledge they needed to succeed on their course. 52% felt they were somewhat or much below where they personally expected to be in their academic studies. And only 33% said they were slightly or very satisfied with the, sport, the support their university had provided to help them find a job or work experience over the last 12 months. 
So the purpose of our Student Futures Commission was to help the sector address overall this massive challenge. It began when, when Mark, and Mark should take a huge amount of credit for this, and, and Team Wonky, uh, came to me with the idea of a catch-up commission about a year ago. But we quickly came to the view that uh, we wanted it to be focused on the future rather than dwell too much on the recent past. But while as autonomous institutions, universities need to own this issue themselves, we felt there was a gap, and a gap in a sector-wide initiative to support uh, the student experience recover from the pandemic. So we took it upon ourselves to fill that gap by establishing a commission which would untangle the ideas, insights and lessons from the whole higher education community that could then be widely disseminated uh, and used to enhance the post-pandemic student experience. We wanted the commission to be both a generous and deeply collaborative effort in the sector to ensure students' successful futures and, as I hope we've proved this week, make practical recommendations for universities, for the wider sector, and to government. Now, what was clear, as Mary said earlier today, during the course of the Commission, was that confidence, whether in relation to school leavers thinking about higher education or university students worrying about their progression and future as a graduate, was low. And this lack of confidence was particularly prevalent for students from disadvantaged backgrounds. Low confidence was the backdrop to our evidence gathering, but not its focus. As we've said, our focus was looking to the future, which is why the key recommendation is for universities and students to co-produce their student futures manifestos. Now, I just want to say, particularly to those from universities in the room, fear not. These are not a re-articulation of your student experience strategies. These are something different. I, I do want to acknowledge, you know, this was an inspired idea that, that, that Wonky and uh, the UPP Foundation cooked up just about a year ago, you know, when Catch Up in Schools was getting all the attention and no one really was considering the needs uh, of our students or the challenges that they were facing. So I think it was a, an absolutely inspired decision. To be honest, I was a little bit surprised um, when I got the call asking me to chair um, the commission. Secretly, I still think that they phoned a few other people first and... <laughs> Imposter syndrome. And I was, was like last on if, if last Mary on. has imposter syndrome, then. <laughs> <laughs> but I just want to say, regardless of the truth or otherwise of that, um, do you know, I've just absolutely loved every minute of it. Our commissioners, our sponsors, Public First have been absolutely superb. And do you know what? It's given me a sense of belonging to the higher education sector that I absolutely love. And, and I kind of hadn't felt that engaged for a while. So it's been, it's been absolutely brilliant. And by the way, it's also reminded me just how brilliant our sector is when it works collaboratively and how kind of um, infectious and, and actually touching its big-heartedness and its wholeheartedness is when it really gets together and gets behind something. So, so thank you all for the way that you've engaged with it. Anyway, uh, I wanted to... Um, do you, um, Richard, are you in charge of the... Can you just put up... The, yeah, so this is... Um, oh, no, I can tell... It's my PowerPoint slides that arrows have kind of stopped syncing with the bits, but you kind of... It's going to get there, it's going to get there. You, <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay, it's not my fault. It's not my fault. Um, so as we were working through, um, I started sort of collecting these ideas of what I was seeing as subtle 
shift in in framing across the sector. And we started to see that quite early on. It felt like the sector was moving, perhaps a bit counterintuitively, actually, to you know to this more social, this more connected, this more affiliative uh, model. And 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 that's kind of what we were saying in our interim report. Um, and that first one about physical places and us needing to think about digital uh, places as well. Um, you know, all of us are using digital spaces to connect within our families, our friends, our professional communities. Um, and that's even for baby boomers like me. I know, you know, we were in a minority in that category. Um, you know, the digital can't replace the physical connection, but it sure can enhance it. And I think that's what students um, want and need. So one of the recommendations in our report, I'm really keen to see taken forward is this idea that we must take a systemic look at legacy IT systems in the sector. I know from the higher education edtech group that I uh, chair and from kind of more general observations and chats, um, you know, many universities still have disproportionately large sized IT teams whose only job really is to, is to kind of keep the cranky old out of support on premise data systems running and all that resource is going into delivering no new value to colleagues um, or to students and you know you're all left uh, struggling with kind of interbreeding spreadsheets you know data silos all over the place and not to mention my favorite which is satellite IT you know covert IT ops popping up in different uh, places you know when they can't stand the actual IT anymore they invent a new lot now meanwhile this extraordinary digital shift that occurred during the pandemic with all its potential benefits you know it risks being squandered because the basic architectural architecture on which to build kind of modern digital platforms just just isn't there and so we've made quite a fundamental recommendation in our report about that it needs to be done so we can take forward the huge advances that have been made delivering uh, mixed-mode education. Uh, and by the way, uh, I think it's on my slide, isn't it? Yeah, I hate the terms hybrid and blended. Um, I think teaching and learning isn't, you know, isn't a sort of three-headed smoothie, is it? It's, um, uh, you know, I like the idea that what we're de- delivering is multimodal or, or mixed-mode teaching and learning. I think in my experience, I really want to endorse both what uh, Richard and what Mary have said is I'm really pleased actually to have seen so much commitment from, you know, whether it's widening participation teams, whether it's student administrators, whether it's student success, whether it's professors, whether it's lectures, having responded positively to what has been a very challenging environment. And of course, students. I think there's too often the sort of negative sort of depiction of what students are or aren't doing, especially during the experience of COVID. Um, but I think that it's great that we have all this ambition and we have all this commitment in the sector, but I think there still is some way to go, as I outlined in some of those data very high, at a very high level, to go in terms of delivery. And I think one thing the manifestos might help to sharpen minds is we don't just need to have the ambition that all students have a good experience and as far as possible an equal opportunity to succeed and thrive in higher education, but we need to deliver on those ambitions. And if these manifestos, I think, taking in mind the concerns I've got and the need to collect data to ensure that we understand the diversity of the student experience, I think these manifestos could really drive what is now an ambition to achieve those ends to actually delivering on them. 
So that's about it for this week. Remember to dig a bit deeper into anything we've discussed today. You'll find links in the show notes on wonky.com. Don't forget you can subscribe to the podcast automatically. Just search for The Wonky Show via Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts or wherever else you listen. And to keep you and your organisation ahead of everything going on in UKHE, do head to the website to find out more about our subscriptions. So thanks very much to everyone that spoke at The Secret Life of Students, to our sponsors Adobe, Handshake, Cortex, Pearson, Salesforce and Solution Path, and to all our wonderful guests, delegates and stallholders. Until next week, stay wonky. Oh, 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 oh